everybody, welcome back. It's episode seven of Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. It's Big E, and I am here today to talk to you guys. We're shifting gears a little bit. We've been talking about use of force law. Today, we're going to talk about decriminalization of marijuana in Virginia. So welcome to this podcast. If it's the first time you're listening, if you haven't listened before, this is a podcast for Virginia law enforcement officers, for police and sheriffs, and I'm hoping to make it regular. I'm hoping to make it a resource for you guys. Um, This is a podcast for officers who want to do it right, who strive every day to be better and to find new ways to strengthen and serve their communities. It's a resource for you guys. I know you come all the time to me and say, hey, how can I learn more? How can I get better at this? How can I understand the law better? And um, you know, there's not a lot of great resources out there. So hopefully this is something that helps out. Uh, I've gotten some really great responses from people already so far. We haven't even officially launched yet. I'm getting good, some good comments. And uh, hey, props to Alan Pauling for catching that wire reference that I've been kind of working into my trainings now for you know about a almost a decade now, and uh, you're the first one who's ever caught it before. So hey, that's uh, you know good job there at reaching out and, and noticing that, and 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 uh, so good ear, good reference, and uh, you know good viewer of the wire there, which of course is a great show. So like I said, I'm going to talk today about marijuana. We've been talking about use of force law a lot, and uh, and I want to shift gears now for the next few episodes and talk about decriminalization of marijuana in uh, Virginia after July 1st. It's going to be a big change in some ways and not a big change in other ways, but I think there's a lot of confusion out there right now. What is the law going to be? Um, some of you may have already attended a training that I did on decriminalization and what's going to happen after decriminalization. So for those of you, there's going to be some stuff in here that's new. There's going to be some stuff that you've heard before if you already heard that training. So sorry, but you know, hey, you can fast forward and uh, I'll tell you what, you get your money back. If you listen to something you didn't like it, you can get your money back for this podcast. Um, I'll give you 100% of the proceeds that I make from this. Um, but the secret is, of course, there's no proceeds. But anyway, so, um, so uh, we're going to talk today about what happens after July 1 with the statute? We're going to talk about the actual statute itself and the legal changes. And then in upcoming episodes, we're going to talk about search and seizure. We're going to talk about the effect on searching of cars, searching of people, arrests, uh, Terry stops, detentions, frisks, all that kind of stuff after decriminalization. But like I said, you know, July 1, uh, Virginia has decided to decriminalize mar- marijuana. And we're talking about the simple possession of marijuana. So what I want to do today is talk about what happens when we have decriminalized simple possession of marijuana, just as far as the statute goes, what that means. And then I want to talk about one particular aspect of the statute that I think is going to be particularly challenging for law enforcement. And that is the section that says that you have to give the person a summons. There is no other alternative than to give a summons. And for law enforcement officers, I think it's going to be a challenge in some cases, and we'll talk about why. But before I do, I want to make sure that we're clear about what the statute actually says, because we've decriminalized simple possession, but distribution is still a felony. And there's some other interesting changes, too. So let's head into that first and talk about that before we go on with anything else. So starting July 1 of 2020, uh, marijuana, simple possession, is decriminalized. So we still have the same code section, 18.2250.1, but now the punishment, instead of being 30 days in jail and a fine of up to $500, is now simply a a civil offense with a maximum fine of $25. And the statute says that it shall be charged on a summons. Now, it's a big deal. We'll talk about that in a little bit. 
But just sort of covering the overview here, the Commonwealth Attorney's offices may enforce this, even though it's a civil offense. Uh, so your Commonwealth Attorney may choose to enter an appearance in these cases. They might not enter their appearance in these cases. It's entirely up to them. Um, if you're only charged with a civil offense, by the way, you're not entitled to court-appointed counsel any longer. So there won't be a public defender in these cases or court-appointed attorney in these cases, although obviously you could still bring your own attorney if you wanted to. Um, there isn't going to be first offender anymore. People aren't going to, you know, these cases aren't going to be uh, ones that result in a person being on probation. There isn't going to be a license suspension anymore. All that stuff is gone um, from the statute. There can be a substance abuse treatment, um, but only if this, the fine is suspended. And again, it's a $25 fine. So who's going to want to go through all that just to not pay a $25 fine? I don't know. So it's a civil offense. And that's a funny phrase. You might say, what does that mean for something to be a civil offense? And if you're confused about what that means, well, there's a reason why, because in Virginia, we don't really have civil offenses. In fact, there's only one other civil offense in the Virginia Code, and that is unreasonable refusal. And, you know, it's hard to make an analogy to unreasonable refusal because refusal is always going to be a charge that you get after you've arrested somebody for DUI and after you've taken the person to the jail and after you've taken to the magistrate and after you've taken to all this process. So this charge is just something that's issued by the magistrate after the person refuses. And you're never going to make an arrest for refusal on the street. You're never going to stop somebody for refusal on the street, right? So this is going to be the first time in Virginia that we have something that we've asked law enforcement to enforce that's not a criminal offense, but it's a civil offense. Uh, it's not a traffic offense. It's not an infraction, but it's not a criminal offense either. The process is going to be the same as a criminal offense. Uh, the appeal, if you appeal it, you go to circuit court. Uh, if you want a jury, you can have a jury. In fact, actually, Governor originally had tried to veto the provision that said uh, that you are entitled to a jury. He didn't want people to get jury trials on the appeals for some reason. and But the General Assembly smacked that down and said, no, 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 we want people to get the full criminal process, even though it's a civil offense. Uh, the case has to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, so it's, it looks a lot like a criminal offense, but it's considered to be a civil offense. Now, before you get excited and say, oh, well, if it's civil, then I'm not involved. I don't care. I'm, you know, a police officer, I don't get involved. Yeah, I mean, as a general matter, law enforcement officers are not supposed to get involved in civil offenses. Excuse me, in civil cases. Law enforcement officers aren't supposed to get involved in civil cases. Um, but this is not a civil case. It's not a civil matter. It's an offense under Virginia law. And law enforcement officers in Virginia, uh, including police, are responsible for the enforcement of state and local laws, regulations, and ordinances. So it's still a police matter, even if it's not a criminal offense. A couple of other things uh, to say about this. It, the, when respect to juveniles, I don't mess a lot with juvenile law because, to be honest with you, I don't know a lot about juvenile law. I don't understand juvenile law very well. But um, but when it comes to juveniles, this, this section hasn't changed that much. Uh, possession of marijuana is still a delinquent act for juveniles. Um, juveniles can still have their privilege to operate a motor vehicle in the Commonwealth of Virginia suspended. Uh, if they possess marijuana, they can still get a drug evaluation and treatment if they uh, if a petition is issued against them for possession of marijuana. So um, the, 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 the juvenile procedure is going to be relatively similar. It's just the adults that have the decriminalization for simple possession. And like I said, we're talking about decriminalization of simple possession of marijuana. I think you hear the phrase decriminalization of marijuana and you think, oh, well, then is distribution no longer? No, distribution is still a crime. Possession with intent to distribute is still a crime. 
The one difference when they have this crime is that they've changed the amounts that break down between misdemeanor and felony. So you might remember the breakdown between a misdemeanor and a felony for possession with intent to distribute or distribution is was a half an ounce. Uh, so before July 1, uh, the law is right now, uh, it's a half an ounce. So if you possess with intent to distribute uh, less than half an ounce, it's a misdemeanor. If you distribute less than half an ounce, it's a misdemeanor. But if you distribute more than an ounce, it's a felony. If you possess with intent to distribute uh, more than an ounce, excuse me, half an ounce, it's a felony. That difference then is going to be, in July 1, it's going to be at an ounce. So after July 1, possession with intent to distribute less than an ounce is a misdemeanor. Distribution of less than an ounce is a misdemeanor offense, uh, punishable again, class one, 12 months in jail, $25 fine maximum. But after July 1, uh, to be a felony, it's got to be more than an ounce, uh, either possession intent to distribute more than an ounce or uh, possession or distribution of more than an ounce. Um, so some states, for when they decriminalize marijuana, would decriminalize you know a certain amount. They would say possession of less than an ounce of marijuana or less than half an ounce of marijuana is decriminalized. And Virginia didn't do that. We didn't say, okay, a possession of a certain amount is decriminalized regardless of your intent. We still have that possession is a, is one offense, and that's a civil offense after July one. And intent possession with intent to distribute is a felony. But what we did add in Virginia as of July 1 is a presumption of personal use for somebody who possesses less than an ounce. And so what happens after July 1 is there's a code section that says that there'll be a rebuttable presumption that a person who's in possession of one ounce or less of marijuana is doing so for personal use. And you'll have to overcome that in court. And that's not that really a big of a change. I mean, if you think about it right now, if you brought in somebody who had a couple of bags of marijuana and it, you know, amounted to be, you know, let's say a quarter ounce of marijuana, if you wanted to demonstrate that person intended to distribute that marijuana, you're going to have to still have a lot of evidence. Just like if you had somebody who had a couple rocks of crack cocaine and they came in, you had maybe three rocks of crack cocaine and you charged them with possession intent to distribute crack cocaine, well, you better have a bunch of evidence in addition to the cocaine that demonstrates the person is intending to distribute or that case isn't going to end up in anything other than a possession right? So maybe you'll have statements. The guy says, I was intending to steal it. Uh, sell it. You might have that the person was actually showing up to a drug deal to sell that amount to somebody. Um, you might have, you know, other, you know, O sheets or, you know, records or text messages or something, but you're going to have to have some other evidence to overcome that. I don't think this particular change, this rebuttable presumption really changes very much as far as the daily work, if you're, you know, approving these cases. One big change, though, that's contained in this law, and it's a very small, you know, line, but it's a huge change, I think, in a lot of ways, is that we have eliminated in Virginia the distinction between marijuana and hashish oil, hash oil. So, you know, existing law says that under Schedule 1, an oily extract containing 12% or higher THC is classified by the Department of Forensic Science as hashish oil, and that is a Schedule 1 controlled substance. So that is a felony offense to possess or to intend to distribute is even a greater punishment. But starting in July 1, if you have an oily extract containing 12% or higher THC, the Department of Forensic Science will just report that back as marijuana. And if a person possesses that, then it's a simply a civil offense. If somebody possesses less than an ounce 
uh, one ounce or uh, less than an ounce of an oily extract containing 12% or higher THC, then that is, and they intend to distribute it, then that's still just misdemeanor possession with intent to distribute. If they sell an oil extract containing 12% or higher THC, um, if they sell less than an ounce, then again, it's still just a, a misdemeanor offense uh, because there is no longer a distinction between hash oil and marijuana. And of course, we still already have the to the hemp issue, right? Which is if you've got something, is it hemp or is it CBD or whatever? And you know, you've probably been dealing with that already. Your jurisdictions have that already. I'm not going to talk about that today because that's sort of an older issue, and your jurisdiction probably has an approach on that. But again, pay attention to what the lab puts out on this. The lab is still working on tests, and they're working on edibles and all this kind of stuff to figure out how they're going to test it and produce it uh, in such a way that you know you can figure out what you what you're dealing with. So that's sort of in short what the changes are going to be in July 1. But like I said, we've got this change, this particular change that I went over kind of quickly and I'm going to talk about in the second half of the episode, which is that uh, because you, because it's a civil offense, uh, the General Assembly also uh, charged that a any violation of this section shall be charged by a summons. And that's what I want to talk about in the second half of this episode. Um, but before I do, I do want to take a talk a minute, take a minute, and talk to you guys about Copline. Uh, at least 228 police officers died by suicide in 2019, according to Blue Help, which is an organization devoted to addressing officers' mental and emotional health in the United States. Um, that's more officers than were killed in the line of duty, and it is way up from previous years, 178 in 2018. Um, and, you know, like half that number or less than half that number in the early 2000s. I mean, any number is too many, but this is a tragedy and it's getting, uh, it's, it's getting worse every year. We need to acknowledge what the stress and what the exposure to trauma is doing to our fellow officers, our fellow law enforcement officers, our fellow public servants uh, in, in our society. Um, look, if you feel like there's no way to face another day, if you feel like there's no way that to keep going, that no one cares, and frankly, the world would be better without you, um, first of all, that is not true. Uh, what you do matters. It matters to your fellow officers, and it matters to the community. Uh, maybe not the people who are sitting up all night blogging and eating Cheetos in their parents' basement, but the people who are getting up every day and going to work and not spending time you know, on internet comment groups. But those people do care about what you do and do appreciate what you do, and you're not alone. You, you know, Find someone to talk to. Find resources. There are resources in your agencies, um, reach out for help. And if you don't have anybody, uh, Copline is there for you. Uh, Copline is manned entirely by retired law enforcement officers. Um, an active or retired officer or their family uh, can call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and be assured that there's a trained, active listener on the other end of the line, a uh, retired law enforcement officer. The cop line is strictly confidential. Um, the number is 1-800-COP-LINE. That's 1-800-267-5463. Uh, 1-800-267-5463 or they're at www.copline.org. Um, and it's a resource that you know everybody should know about, be aware of. Uh, it's there for you to help you in times of need. So, uh, well, let's talk about this issue that I mentioned, which is this, this part of the code that goes into effect in July 1 that says that civil, uh, simple possession of marijuana shall be charged on a summons. So what the code section actually says is any violation of this section shall be charged by summons, and a summons for this violation, a violation of this section may be executed by a law enforcement officer when such violation is observed by such officer. 
and the summons is the same as the VUS that you guys have been using all along. Okay, so, uh, well, what does that mean, right? So let's think for a second about 19.2-74, right? So we know that under 19.2-74, there's a lot of code, there's a lot of offenses in Virginia, criminal offenses, that you, you know, are supposed to release somebody on a summons for. So let's say, for example, uh, open container, right? Or um, trespassing, uh, you have somebody who's trespassing, you want to release that person on a summons, you are supposed to release that person on a summons, but there are exceptions. And in particular, there's five exceptions. The five exceptions are number one, that the person fails to give their name and address. They don't identify themselves. Can't fill out a summons if they don't identify themselves. The person fails to sign the summons. The person fails to discontinue the illegal act. The, per the officer believes the arrestee is likely to disregard the summons or the arrestee poses a threat to the officer's or others' safety. So those are the five exceptions that exist under 19.274. Um, if somebody doesn't identify themselves, then they're going to get arrested and taken to the magistrate, and, and then the magistrate or the jail will figure out who they are. If the person fails to sign the summons, they fail to acknowledge that they will show up to the court, to court on the date and time assigned. Well, again, then you're going to go to court and you're going to go to uh, the magistrate and the magistrate will recognize you to appear. Or if you don't, if that doesn't work, then the judge will recognize you to appear um, because you won't sign anything. Uh, the person fails to discontinue the illegal act. They refuse to stop trespassing. You know, then they're going to get arrested. Um, they're going to disregard the summons. You arrest somebody for trespassing. They show up again an hour later or a day later in the same place that you just arrested them for trespassing for. Um, or the person poses a threat to your safety. In those circumstances, then the, even though you're supposed to release a person on a summons, you can still take them into custody. Okay, well, we know that that's the law with regards to most offenses. But in this particular offense, 19.2250.1, it doesn't reference 19.274, it doesn't incorporate 19.274, it doesn't contain those exceptions. There are no exceptions. You shall release this person on a summons. So what in the world does that mean for you? Well, let's walk through the situations where you might not be somebody on a summons on 19.274. Okay, number one, the person poses a threat to your safety. All right, well, if the person poses a threat to your safety, then you probably have something more than just possession of marijuana. So I'm not going to really talk about that because if, the, again, what's the person, how are they a threat to you? Well, if they've got a weapon, um, you know, if they're, if they're assaulting you, if they're physically obstructing you using violence, um, brandishing a weapon of some kind, all those offenses are probably going to be some other crime. So they're going to get arrested for something else. Person's likely to disregard the summons. Well, if they're likely to disregard the summons, in other words, they're likely to go out and get more marijuana somewhere else, then I guess they're going to get charged again. That's not really an exception anymore. Um, the person fails to discontinue the illegal act. I'm going to put that off for a second because that really goes to can you search and seize marijuana? I'm going to talk about that in a future episode, but just flash forward. Marijuana is still contraband in Virginia. Possession is still unlawful. And this code section that we're talking about, 18.2250.1, it's still in the criminal code, and it still starts with the, with the declaration that possession of marijuana, marijuana is unlawful in Virginia. So it's still contraband. You still can't have it. And so uh, we're going to, you know, you're likely going to be seizing the marijuana from the person. But you still have these two uh, situations where you might normally have to take someone into custody uh, in lieu of giving them a summons. And it's the first two that I mentioned. The person fails to sign the summons or the person fails to give their name and address. So I'm working my way back. Let's talk about somebody who fails to sign the summons. Now for this, um, 
I think it's pretty clear that what the code is telling you is that if you are giving somebody a summons for possession of marijuana and they refuse to sign that summons, that you shouldn't be taking him into custody. That what you're going to have to do is, you know, if they're in a car, you're just going to you know, slip the summons in the car or put it underneath the windshield wiper. If they're on the street, you know, put it in their pocket or put it on the, on the, on the ground in front of them and they might tear it up. They might step on it. They might just say, I don't need that. Walk away. Um, this is a civil offense. And if they choose not to show up to court, well, they're not going to get a failure to appear. They're just going to get tried in their absence and get a $25 fine. They don't have to show up to court any more than somebody who's charged with speeding has to show up to court. Um, they can certainly disregard it and just not show up and then they get the $25 fine and then, you know, we move on. So if somebody refuses to sign the summons, then I think what the General Assembly is saying here is you just write refuse to sign summons and then you take their copy and you, you know, say, hey, look, here it is. It's on this mailbox. It's on the ground. It's on the, you know, it's on the dashboard of your car. It's on the windshield of your car. Take it or leave it, whatever. But, um, you know, I've made it available to you. I've given you notice and I'm moving on. The challenging part of this new code section, though, the one that puts you in a trick box and doesn't provide you an answer is what if somebody fails to give their name and address? They fail to identify themselves, right? So imagine a situation where you're walking down the street and you see somebody and they're sitting on the park bench and they're smoking marijuana, right? So the code section says that you shall give that person a summons for this civil offense of possession of marijuana. So you walk over and um, you, you know, seize the marijuana from them and uh, you field tested and it is marijuana and you make sure it's not uh, hemp. So you field tested and use the Swiss test and figure out it's not hemp. So now you've got marijuana and you're going to give this person a summons for possession of marijuana. And you tell the person, okay, do you have any ID? Do you have any ID on you? And the person says, nope, I don't have any ID. Okay, great. Well, what's your name? I'm not providing you my name. In fact, I'm not saying anything. I watch YouTube and every video on YouTube says I shouldn't talk to the police. Never talk to the police. All right. Well, if you were charging this person with trespassing, if you were charging this person with open container, you might say at this point, okay, well, this is going to get bad because now I'm going to have to take you to the magistrate and the jail is going to have to identify you, use your fingerprints, or somehow we're going to have to figure out who you are. And you're not making the situation better on yourself. And that would be true because... All of your summonses that you give for those offenses are summonses issued under 19.274. But this code section doesn't have those exceptions. This code section simply says you shall release this person on a summons. So now you're in a situation where the person's refused to identify themselves. You have no idea who they are. You don't have any way of verifying who they are. Or they give you some phony baloney name. My name is John Smith and my social security number is 1234567889. That's my phone, you know. So it's not an accurate, right? So you have false information. Well, I guess that would be false information for a law enforcement officer, so you could arrest them for that. So let's just say they just say, say nothing to you, okay? So they give you no information at all. At this point, what are you to do, right? And so there's a great deal of debate going on right now as to whether or not somebody who fails to give you that information is committing the offense of obstruction of justice. And so what this takes us down the road of is talking about, well, what is obstruction of justice and what isn't obstruction of justice in the Commonwealth of Virginia? And, and that's what I want to talk about right now, because there's a great deal of debate about, well, if somebody's refusing to identify themselves in a, in a, a civil offense of possession of marijuana after July 1, are they guilty of obstruction? Well, here's what the obstruction section says, right? So we're talking about nonviolent obstruction of justice, passive obstruction of justice. So that's going to be under 18.2-2, uh, 
sorry, I mean 18.2460A. And 18.2460A tells us that if any person without just cause knowingly obstructs a law enforcement officer in the performance of their duties or fails or refuses without just cause to cease such obstruction when requested to do so is guilty of a class one misdemeanor. And obstruction of justice in the eyes of the courts, of the Court of Appeals and Virginia Supreme Court, is not simply making your job harder. And the case about this that gets cited most often is Ruckman versus Commonwealth. Now, Ruckman is an interesting set of facts. What happens in Ruckman is an officer is doing a crash investigation. He's doing an FR-300, and it, uh, the crash involves Mr. Ruckman. Mr. Ruckman appears, it appears Mr. Ruckman was driving the car, but he won't admit to driving the car. And so what the deputy says, the officer says in this case is, well, I can't complete my FR-300. I can't complete my crash investigation report. Uh, I can't complete my investigation at all if I don't know who was driving this car. And Mr. Ruckman will not tell me who was driving the car that was involved in this crash. Instead, Mr. Ruckman provides a bunch of phony baloney information to the officer uh, that's misleading and doesn't provide the truth, which is that Ruckman was the person who was driving. So he's convicted of obstruction. He appeals, and the Court of Appeals reverses the conviction. And they conclude that although Mr. Ruckman's apparently conflicting statements may have frustrated Trooper White's investigation, the state trooper was doing the case, the statement did not oppose, impede, or resist White's efforts to con conduct an investigation. And Ruckman goes all the way back to this case called Jones versus Commonwealth, which is a 1925 case about obstruction, to, uh, to explain that, you know, running away or hiding from the police, these things are not obstruction of justice. Uh, Jones was a 1925 case. It was a, it was a Prohibition era case where officer, people, guys are fleeing away from the police and they're throwing their uh, alcohol outside the car, out of the car while they're driving away. They're convicted of obstruction. And in that case, the Virginia Supreme Court said to constitute an obstruction of an officer in the performance of his duty, it's not necessary there be an actual or technical assault on the officer, but there must be acts clearly indicating an intention on the part of the accused to prevent the officer from performing his duty as to obstruct ordinarily implies opposition or resistance by direct action. It means to obstruct the officer, not merely to oppose or impede the process with which the officer is armed. Um, there's a broad distinction in the eyes of the court between avoidance and resistance or opposition. And so we have these cases about uh, passive resistance. What is unlawful obstruction for somebody who's passively resisting and what isn't? And um, there's lots of cases involving, for example, people fleeing from the police. Uh, Roberts is a person who is a habitual offender. He's fleeing from the police. He's running away. And uh, he's convicted of obstruction. And the court in Roberts says simply running, resisting, and refusing to put your hands up behind your back uh, when ordered to do by the police does not sufficiently obstruct justice to be found guilty of obstruction. Um, Love versus Commonwealth, a guy flees from the police in his vehicle, then he gets out of his car, he runs on foot, the officer's yelling behind, saying, stop, stop, you're under arrest. He's convicted of obstruction, and again, the court finds that if all he's doing is running from the police, he's not obstructing justice, and so uh, he's found not guilty. So... Um, these are these passive resistance cases that say that simply simply not just making your job harder, not cooperating in an investigation is not obstruction. 
But the story doesn't end there, right? Because there's a strong argument on the other side to say that somebody not cooperating with you, making your job impossible, uh, making it not possible to complete your task without, uh, you know, bringing in other officers and somebody doing so on purpose with the goal of preventing you from keeping from completing your, your job is obstruction, right? And I want to tell you about those cases too. And one of those cases is a case called Thorn versus Commonwealth. Um, Thorn, where the vehicle is stopped for having heavily tinted windows, the officer approaches the vehicle, um, the Ms. Thorn lowers her window just enough to slip her driver's license out. The officer says, you know, ma'am, I'm investigating uh, your window tint violation. I need you to lower your windows long, long enough for me to be able to actually test the tint on the windows. She refuses to do so. The officer says, there's people in the car. I can't see what the people are doing. So now I've got a call for other officers. Um, he testifies and explains clearly in the case um, that he's got a you know, he's got to call other officers in. Um, she refuses, and uh, about ten minutes goes by where she he continues tries to get her to um, to lower her windows, and she refuses to do so. She says, "Look, I'm not directly opposing you. I'm just not cooperating with you." But the court of appeals, in affirming her conviction for obstruction, says, um, "Look, simply making an officer's job more difficult is not obstruction, but." When the officer seek, seeks to make the defendant act directly and the defendant refuses or fails to act as required, if the behavior clearly indicates an intention on the part of the defendant to prevent the officer from performing his duty, then the evidence proves the offense. And, you know, ultimately Thorne complies about 10 minutes later when a bunch of other officers show up, but nonetheless, the court uh, affirms the conviction in this case. There is, by the way, a case, uh, and there's a case called um, uh, Warren, where an officer also, it's an unpublished case, but the officer, it's from the Court of Appeals, um, disobeys officer's commands, refuses to stop, refuses to get on the ground, refuses to exit a building when he's ordered to do so. And the court uh, affirms his obstruction conviction as well, finding the defendant's actions demonstrated that he understood or reasonably should have understood that the officer's duties included apprehending him. And the defendant in that case demonstrated an intention to prevent the officers from performing their duty based on his refusals to comply with the officer's legitimate orders. Um, and there's also a case called Roberts that I just want to mention. Roberts is not really a case about obstruction because it's about the Loudoun County Obstruction Ordinance, which talks about hindering and not obstruction. Um, but Roberts is interesting because it's a case where, again, the person refused to cooperate in an officer's investigation, a sheriff's deputy's investigation into a domestic assault. And in that case, um, the evidence, the court wrote, the evidence shows the appellant's insistence that Deputy uh, Van Brocklin leave her home and her refusal to cooperate with and respond to the, uh, the deputy's inquiries and requests for information interfered with his investigation. Um, and therefore, it was proper to convict her under Loudoun County's ordinance. So, um, you know, what's the takeaway here? What's the, uh, what should you be taking with you if you're trying to figure out, you know, is this person guilty of obstruction or is this person not guilty of obstruction? Well, the number one takeaway for you is you're going to have to figure out with your local commonwealth attorney and your local police department and your judges are going to have a lot to say about this, um, whether or not somebody refusing to provide you with identification is going to con constitute obstruction in the eyes of your prosecutors, your judges, uh, your community. And, uh, and, and so you should 
figure that out and you should talk to your prosecutors and talk to your departments and talk to your fellow officers before this situation happens because the last thing you want to do is try to answer this question on the side of the road at two o'clock in the morning with true you know recruit officers who've been out on the street for a month each and they're trying to answer the question for the first time so this is a real problem uh, you should figure out what the answer is going to be before it comes up and you should talk to your prosecutors about it if you're going to prove it in court at the very least you need to show you're going to need to show some willful refusal to cooperate on the person's part with the officer. It's not just, I don't have any ID on me, officer, but just willfully not providing you with uh, name, address, identifying information, and then something that's preventing you from completing your job. I mean, if you know who this person is anyway, right? So, you know, let's face it. I mean, we know about 80 to 90% of the people that we're arresting because it's the same people all the time anyway. I mean, this is the same people over and over again who commit offenses most of the time. Um, if you know who the person is and they refuse to identify themselves, I know who you are anyway. I'm going to get the summons. Then you're not going to get an obstruction uh, conviction because they, the person didn't make your job more difficult. But if you really don't know who the person is and they willfully refuse to cooperate with you, then if you can demonstrate, okay, because they refuse to provide identification, then I had to do the following things. I had to call other officers in the scene or I had to take a picture and have people go and you know, look up at the system or whatever, then you might have uh, an obstruction, evidence of obstruction, at least probable cause of obstruction. Um, and then the question is, okay, now what am I going to do? I mean, am I going to take this person into custody uh, and transport them to the magistrate's office? Am I going to put them in handcuffs? And that leaves us with sort of the last issue, which wheels us back to those first few episodes we talked about, which is use of force, right? Because remember, at the end of the day, if somebody's not cooperating with me, they're not probably not just sitting there, sitting there with their mouth quiet, saying, I'm not going to cooperate with you. They are perhaps also saying, and in addition to that, I'm going to walk away and I don't want to have anything to do with this investigation. I'm not providing you with ID and I'm leaving. Um, and maybe they decide to run away. Well, you know, the question you have to ask yourself is how much force am I willing to use under the law to enforce a civil offense, right? And that's what I want you to think about as we leave today. Uh, we talked about the standards under federal law under Graham versus Connor for the use of non-deadly force. And the number one factor in Graham versus Connor is the severity of the crime at issue. Now, the court also looks at whether the person poses a threat to somebody else and whether the person is actively resisting or evading arrest by flight. But as we saw in Armstrong versus Pinehurst, which is the case where the person, where the officers drive stun, tase that person repeatedly over a two-minute period, uh, who was refusing to be taken into custody for an, under an emergency custody order, when the crime at issue is a very is not even a crime at all. Uh, the court is very skeptical about the use of force and they are going to approve of some level of force because the person is still actively resisting or evading. It's not like you can't use any force at all, but it definitely reduces the amount of force in the eyes of the court that you could lawfully use under the circumstances, unless there's something else, unless there's an evidence of a threat or unless there's an evidence of another crime or, or that kind of thing. So as you leave today and you think about, okay, what am I going to do with somebody who refuses to cooperate, uh, who is who I've got probable cause has committed the civil offense of simple possession of marijuana, um, you know, ask yourself, well, what would I do if the person refused to identify themselves? What would I do if the person refused to produce ID? What, if the, what would I do if the person said, okay, and I'm walking away? What would I do if the person said, I'm going to run away? Uh, you, you should have answers that you've worked out with each other and that you feel like your prosecutors are going to support you in um, because uh, it's it's going to happen. And, 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 and the code section is written in such a way to, um, to create this conflict. Uh, there's no avoiding it. 
So uh, not really an answer, uh, but certainly maybe questions that you should be asking. Other than that, that's what I've got for you guys today. I hope it was useful. Uh, if you like the podcast, tell your friends. If you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. Uh, but that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured. <laughs>